about this plan of yours. I think it's good, except it sucks. So let me do the plan, and that way, it might be really good. Wow. Time. Space. Reality. It's more than a linear path. It's a prism of endless possibility. Where a single choice can branch out into infinite realities. Creating alternate worlds from the ones you know. I am the Watcher. I am your guide through these vast new realities. Follow me and ponder the question What if? Hello, and welcome to It's Good Except It Sucks, a movie-by-movie movie and television series-by-television series hurtled through the Marvel Cinematic Universe. This time, we're taking a look at What If, first seen in August 2021, when, if you wanted to look clever in front of your friends, you could have watched Money Court, The Ultimate Surfer, or Jay's Yorkshire Workshop instead. I'm Tim Worthington, and we'll be finding out what I made of What If shortly. Meanwhile, joining us to give his thoughts on What If is writer Martin Ruddock. Martin, where can people find you? I can be found on Twitter at Sugar Ray Buzzard and can be found in the pages of Shindig Magazine, uh, Music Monthly, also Vintage Rock and various other publications. Okay, so before we go any further, Martin, what happens in What If? What If is essentially the most surprising choice for a Marvel series I've ever seen because it was one I was honestly expecting him never to make. What If is essentially a series of what appear to be one-shots. It will introduced by The Watcher, Oahu The Watcher, uh, played by Jeffrey Wright, who introduces essentially its wish fulfillment. What happened in your favourite Marvel Cinematic Universe scenario if this had happened instead? It was a long-running comic series that started in, I think, the mid-70s. And each one scenario, for example, I don't know, what if Spider-Man's uncle Ben had lived but aren't may had died and there's some absolutely bonkers ones i remember there's a barking mad one where jack kirby wrote and drew it it was what if the original marvel bullpen were the fantastic four <laughs> i mean it's one of those clearly very late at night late 70s ideas but doesn't really fly stanley's mr fantastic and kirby's the thing sol brodsky who's one of the early editorial staff is the human torch and i can't remember who the invisible girl is it's flo somebody i can't find the comic anyway i mean all of these what ifs all one-offs each one is okay you want this to have happened well this is what would have happened if it had happened and it always comes back without fail to the one universal truth of marvel's what if series which is you think this is a good idea but ours is better but what if in this incarnation i think is entirely different it really is and you've partly answered my next question there but martin how much did you know about the watcher and what if before you saw the series quite a lot really i mean he'd been popping up in i think chiefly things like fantastic four for quite a long time hadn't he essentially the watcher's whole thing i observe i don't interfere i just introduce the story and i pop up at the end to wrap it up you know a bit like a kind of intergalactic rod serling who's literally there to kind of do the anthology side of things 
I was very familiar with it. I mean, I don't know how many issues it ran for. I know it was running right into the late 80s, early 90s. I think one of the last times I ever read it was, what if the all-new Uncanny X-Men, the 1975 X-Men, had immediately died? You've got such a rich universe of characters and so many possibilities, but they were running out of things. What can we do for one week only so that we can show you what would have happened if they had died and also show you that our way is better? Yeah, that's interesting that you mentioned that it is quite different to the comic style in this because the main thing that struck me was that you know in the comics it is kind of they don't really tend to spin out of existing stories although existing stories come into it the decisions are broader brushstroke things like the ones I remember are things like what if the Punisher's family had survived what if the Fantastic Four had each other's powers what if the Black Cat became a celebrity I mean where did that come from but in this it is <laughs> what if something in one of the films because they don't really touch on the TV series in this had gone slightly different And, you know, they spin it out from there very well, but it's always that. It's always building towards a larger narrative, although you're not really aware of that at first. And like you, when I heard there was going to be a What If series, I thought, really? I mean, one thing we've not mentioned is it's animated because there's no way they could have done it live action with the original cast because some of them weren't even available to do voiceovers, which I'm sure we'll come back to. No, you can definitely tell whose contract's up on this series, can't you? Yeah, we had a troubled production history all of its own, which we'll come back to. But yeah, it was quite different. The other thing to point out is that although I was surprised they did this, they had actually done What If in Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. in the fantastic season four. I mean, this has been discussed a couple of times on Twitter recently. If you're curious about Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., start with season four and then go watch the early ones because it's one Mm. of the best series of anything ever. But they do without giving too much away. A What If storyline where it explores what would have happened if they all had been recruited by Hydra instead of S.H.I.E.L.D. And that's more a kind of comic What If ponderer than we got in this series but also in Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2 some watchers do appear talking to Stan Lee and getting very impatient with him very quickly and what's interesting was a couple of the terrible people at the moment are saying oh well Luke Cage will have to be recast because he's not canon anymore we're all saying oh well that must be in Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2 isn't canon anymore because you know getting the watcher in will be different but literally just yesterday the day before we recorded this the Assembled on Disney Plus which is the new making of documentary series they've got the what if one came out and it opens with kevin feige referencing the fact that we'd already had the watchers in guardians of the galaxy volume 2 so stick that in your pipe and smoke it boys I think as well, the thing that has very much been opened up by this is you can basically now plausibly recast anybody in the whole Marvel Cinematic Universe. You have different actors coming in to play those roles. There's a bit, obviously we're skipping ahead a little bit here, but there is a bit where in the final episode where Nick Fury meets the Black Widow from another reality and looks her up and down and says, you're Natasha, but you're not our Natasha. I think that's kind of like touching on the fact that perhaps they look different as well. And obviously Black Widow is voiced by Lake Bell. They've done quite a clever thing because obviously Marvel is going completely gung-ho for the whole multiverse thing at the moment. We've seen that in Loki, what's coming next with um, Spider-Man No Way Home, with the next Doctor Strange film, probably the next Ant-Man and the Wasp as well. It's going to go full-on multiversal. I don't know where you stand on this, but with the multiverse thing, where you're starting to see different versions of the same characters and where it's hopping between realities, you have actually got a plausible way of kind of bringing somebody back. Well, as well as that, I just find it fascinating that, you know, like we've both said, what if was something we couldn't visualise them ever doing? And a couple of things, no. like the TVA and Kang being in Loki, some other things that are coming up, the whole multiverse thing, 
I'd always thought were just too way out for, you know, something aimed at mainstream audiences, really. And what kind of cemented that for Mm. me was, you know, over the whole Infinity Saga, in the original Infinity Gauntlet comic, there was a lengthy interlude involving the Watcher and a couple of other people like the Living Tribunal, where basically they all go to them and plead and say, Thanos has done this thing. He's eradicated 50% of existence in the universe. Can't you do something? And they're all like, nah, you're on your own, mate. This is a bit out of our remit. I thought because of that, they were avoiding all of this, but they've somehow found a way to make it appeal to mainstream audiences, which I'm really quite hats off to them about that because people get really excited about what if I didn't expect to. It's really not an obvious thing, isn't it? I was very sceptical about going full multiversal and they've really run with it, which was surprising in itself. I mean, the scale of it as well. You think to a mainstream audience, no, it's not a big hook, is it? But I think the way that it's been made on such a scale as well, I think the animation is beautiful. They've really put a lot of effort into it. I mean, obviously, as we know, what we've seen in the MCU so far is visually dazzling. I think What If arguably maybe takes it even a little bit further because it's trying to do things on an even greater scale. There's stuff in What If you couldn't film. They've really gone to town with the graphics, with the effects, with the whole, the editing, the jump cuts. It's got to be the most expensive cartoon series ever made. Also, the scope of what they can do, given it's just animation, because the episode I wanted to bring up first is my favourite one, which is the one inspired by Marvel zombies where I had genuinely thought because Marvel Zombies is one of the biggest comic runs they've done in recent times and it's a tremendous idea you know what happens if you've got zombies and they've got all these superpowers but no brain power at all they are just feral with them and how do you do that in a film you can't you know and you can't introduce it as a film in the franchise without really confusing people here they can just do it exactly because they couldn't not represent it in some way you know I was expecting maybe you know Wanda again somebody a hallucination in one of the films or something but they've actually done Marvel Zombies the story in about a fraction with a paper runtime of it and done it really well as well the only thing I didn't like which is going to bring me on to let's get this out of the way the shortcomings of the series I felt the ending not the Watchers Post recap ending where you know something quite menacing happens but the actual resolution of the story felt a little tacked on now there were moments in this where some episodes I didn't think I know there was the whole issue with the pandemic and so on but I mean, come on, they did almost all of the Falcon and the Winter Soldier under social distancing. And, you know, the scale of that programme. Yeah. Even with this, there was an episode they had to drop, which we'll come back to because there wasn't enough time to finish it. But there was somewhere it felt like it just wasn't written well enough. It wasn't even that the dialogue wasn't snappy enough or zippy enough. There wasn't enough dialogue. There was just some talking. Particularly, I think the episode with Hank Pym really suffered from that. It was a bit kind of he said, she said. Also, let's really, really get this out of the way because I'm wondering if you might differ about this. People are very mixed about the Doctor Strange-centric episode. I know that a couple of guests Mm. from this podcast really didn't like it. I know Hannah Flint didn't, Gareth Irons didn't. I struggled with it for much the same reason, because it is the first time they've done proper fridging in the MCU, as in had a male character driven heroically by the death of a female character, where they'd always managed, even when they had to do it for narrative purposes, to turn it a different way. Like, you know, the Punisher's family and 
murder, but he is insane. He's not a hero. He's gone so yeah. mad that he's got a kind of clarity. Luke Cage's wife dying gave him kind of the inclination just to do good in the world rather than be heroic. He doesn't want to be a hero. Hank Pym, the movie Hank Pym, is just he's he's not heroic. He's hiding from the world because of what happened. Just he knows his mm. wife is still alive, actually, and hoping to bring her back. But here it is just woman dies in car crash, man says, Oh no, I must bring her back. And the two things that complicate that are it was written by AC Bradley, and she must have been aware that that's what she was doing. And also it does feed into the story arc. But it's difficult to do that in this day and age of you know, watch at your leisure and binge watching and so on. It it's that much more difficult to justify having something like that on its own. I think for me it was definitely the weakest individual one. Part of my problem with it is I never really got the impression from the Doctor Strange film that Strange was really that bothered about her. Doctor Strange, pre-Mystic Arts, is self-absorbed. He's only really into himself. He is a narcissist. It's not really like that character, is it? Because if you think about it, everyone else that crops up in this... Peggy Carter might have super soldier serum running through her veins, but still acts like Peggy Carter. Black Widow is a Black Widow. All the characters act pretty much like themselves, for the most part. A couple of exceptions, but really, Doctor Strange, and it's a bit of a disconnect as well, because you've got Benedict Cumberbatch kind of, uh, well, probably been told, okay, here's some different material for you to stretch out on here. You can be this kind of lovelorn, driven man who's doing anything to bring his late ex back. But really, it just, yeah, it doesn't really land, because it's just Doctor Strange not really acting like Doctor Strange on top of the fridging, on top of the kind of, it's very clearly a futile quest. You clock onto it very quickly that whatever he's doing, this is not going to work. It was one that I was surprised that they did. I thought that it was a what-if episode that was put in because he was available. What if Benedict Cumberbatch was available? They should have done. Yeah, what yeah. <laughs> when Martin Freeman's like standing <laughs> in the Sherlock studio looking at his watch. <laughs> what if Benedict Cumberbatch was unavailable but Benedict Wong was? <laughs> it didn't really line up for me. I mean, that's me briefly thinking, okay, this series is starting to lose me a little bit. And considering it was like, what, the third episode or something? It was, I was thinking, like, this is not really a great sign. But then, of course, didn't realise at the time but it was all going to culminate in something, which in itself is very unlike the What If comic series because that's just an endless series of one-shots. Yeah, I think they actually did build that narrative, that overarching narrative, really well because it was three or four mm. episodes in before I thought, hang on, this might all tie up somewhere. And there is a fascinating interview with AC Bradley out there where, you know, having just by proxy had a bit of a go at her over that episode, just makes some amazing points in it. Like, they deliberately didn't call the Watcher by his name to bring back some more mystery into it because you know you've had this character that has mm. been involved in actual storylines in the comics from fighting alongside doesn't he fight alongside the Fantastic Four in the f or tries to the first time they encounter Galactus and there's things like the famous thing where Squirrel Girl accidentally defeats Thanos and he appears to say yes that is the real Thanos Squirrel Girl has somehow knocked him <laughs> unconscious it was to pull away from all of that from all the established you know back history with him also that she went out of her way to avoid featuring anything, not just that was going to be in Loki or Doctor Strange in the Multiverse of Madness or anything, but also anything that was going to appear, because it's been in development since 2018 in any of the films and any guy so one of the things they considered was what if Pepper Potts was Iron Man instead of Tony Stark and then obviously, you know, she turns up as a rescue in Avengers Endgame what if Jane found Thor's hammer and then, you know, they are doing that in the next Thor film. The yeah. whole thing was to make it complete 
completely different, completely standalone. And apparently I touched down with that, but to think of it in terms of the watcher being like somebody watching a viral video like Pizza Rat, where, you know, they don't care mm. about how the rat got the pizza, where it's headed, where it's come from, who recorded it. They don't want to know what was going through the rat's mind or anything. They just watch it and are almost impassive about it. And I think that really made it into something that could have just been a bit like a DVD extra, a bit like the Signimation things, which are a huge bugbear of mine, where they animated Seinfeld scenes on the DVDs for no reason. But it's not that. It is completely a thing in its own right. And I think every single decision there was absolutely bang on. I mean, the individual instalments of What If, I mean, the Cat and Carter one is just a joyous little romp, isn't it? Part of me sort of goes, why wasn't she Captain Britain? But at the same time, they probably want to do Captain Britain at some point. So having Captain Carter as Captain Carter and Hayley Atwell's wonderful in it. She's really enjoying herself, isn't she? She is. She's having an absolute blast. Part of me kind of almost wished that Steve Rogers wasn't in it. Just like, just let her just have this to herself. Maybe my favourite is T'Challa. I was going to say that's a very close second to the zombies for me. And what I really loved was, again, it gave them a chance to put in some things that they couldn't possibly do in the actual MCU because of the way the characters established. But the two things in particular that I love that they managed to reference are what's commonly referred to as Dating Nebula, Mm. a much more assured and better looking character. Apparently, Karen Gillan came up with calling T'Challa Cha-Cha on set. And they were like, that's fantastic. That's exactly what you should do. But the other one is the Spidey version of Thanos, who, for anyone who doesn't know, they tried to do a version of Spider-Man, I think it was in the very late 70s, for, you know, kind of five, six-year-olds, and they watered it down a bit. And Thanos was an antagonist in that, in a much more jovial style, as he's presented here. And also, he had a helicopter called the Thanos Copter, with its name written on the side, which appears in Loki. (laughs) So I love that they've referenced that twice. But the episode itself just tore the hinges off, because it was such a great way. They even referenced some jokes in Guardians of the Galaxy, turning them on their heads because you know what if well what if star lord was a completely different influence on everything around him because you know they are not similar people at all no i love the fact that thanos is just kind of like this sort of yeah you could say spidey thanos but he is just he's wacky thanos who's just been talked over the good side of things i love that version of nebula as well i mean i'm never going to have much problem with watching karen gillan and everything even when she's just sort of made out of lines but i think that one was just very very fun and it had that slight sting in the tail ending which is obviously when ego approaches dairy queen peter quill i mean there is that slight sting in the tail the zombies episode is very funny as well despite the apocalyptic events that are going on the marvel zombies induction video <laughs> at the beginning i mean some of the deaths you shouldn't really be laughing at that, but you can't really help yourself. I mean, they are some very funny deaths. And also the there. fact that they brought Kurt from Ant-Man into it, which, you know, is really thinking outside the box. He's not somebody you would reach for first. No. Ditto no. the several appearances by Howard the Duck, which I was really pleased to see. Obviously, they're not sure what to do with him, I think is the main problem. No. And this was a good excuse to use him, again, voiced by Seth Green, as much as they could, really. It's a great little kind of Z-team Avengers. I mean, you've got some heavy hitters like Spider, 
already in there, but really, I love the fact that it's a bit cobbled together. They've got a lot of spirit, they don't quite know what they're doing. Obviously, that episode just unravels. I saw the fact that Vision had a zombie wander locked up. I mean, I could see that from space. That was incredibly obvious. Are you the Watcher in that case? <laughs> I think I might be. I mean, I mean, especially if I sight like mine, if I could see it from that far. It was literally, it was so telegraphed, the dialogue as well. I know, Wanda, you've run out of limbs. I'll go sacrifice myself. Oh, hang on. <laughs> I wasn't quite so sold on all the Avengers getting assassinated. It was a good idea with, as I said, very little actual decent dialogue in it. It just felt a bit like, almost like yeah. an AV describer talking about what's happening on the screen. There wasn't any real yeah. interaction between the characters, which is a shame because, you know, you've got Phil Coulson in there. you got Betty Ross brought back for the yeah. first time since, I think, since the first Hulk film. And they just don't really do anything with anyone. It all just sort of happens. Yeah, I think one of the things you say, yeah, definitely the thing about not a lot of good dialogue, but also just not a lot of dialogue, full stop. The scenes in particular, the bits where when Black Widow is sort of hunting around looking for the file and has the it's you moment, bits like that, which very much kind of smacked to me of we've animated this bit, but we've not really dropped a lot of dialogue into it. It's a bit odd and you can really tell when somebody's not there. I mean, obviously, one of the things with What If, I mean, it's Chadwick Boseman's last performance as T'Challa and he does a wonderful job, but he's one of the ones you don't really feel it so much when he's silent or not off screen. I mean, he's still very much a presence in there, isn't he? He doesn't feel like he's absent, whereas Killmonger just kind of, you almost forget he's in it because he just disappears for ages. I've got to say, the Killmonger episode felt incredibly underwritten to me. It's not helped by the fact that I think people went overboard in praising it because I'm just so bored of the, I think Killmonger is best, everyone look at me, they should bring him back instead of Chadwick Boseman. Well, first of all, no, they should do Shuri for so many reasons, but second you know, it was a great one to me, using exactly the analogy of Michael B. Jordan. It's like in the wire of somebody said, well, Wallace was good though, wasn't he? And I know he got shot dead by his mates, but we should bring him back because people want to see more of it. It doesn't quite work that way. And I no. think people are just using that as an off-the-peg opinion, and that's why they really went behind this kind of tepidly plotted and very, very wordy episode. I mean, I wasn't even 100% sure in the last scene with Pepper and Shuri kind of rumbling him what they'd actually found out on what they were going to do I was just a bit no. kind of what, 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 what's happened there no it didn't really end did it? it just sort of stopped the entire point of that was oh okay Killmonger's a dick and then later on they bring him back and guess what Killmonger's still a dick that's basically the big point they're pushing there release the phone
One thing I don't think we have touched on is the fact that Tony Stark has become the Kenny from South Park of this series. Because the amount of times which Tony Stark gets killed off, it's kind of a bit beyond a joke. He is Rory from Doctor Who. He is Kenny. I mean, I don't know if it is it a running joke or is it just to try and because Stark's such a strong big character well, that the writers want him out of the way. I have a theory that it's a running joke that a bit disappeared off because in the finale episode there is that bit where Gamora's told you have been chosen for the Guardians of the Multiverse, not you, Stark, and you know. He looks really crestfallen. <laughs> but there's a whole episode with those two that had to be postponed because they just hadn't finished it in time. And what's really conspicuous about that was that several months before What If heard, because I mean, it's the whole thing about originally they announced it as 26 episodes. And the theory obviously was that there was going to be one per film for the Infinity Saga. Then it became mm. 10. Then it became 9 because this one vanished. But a couple of months beforehand, they released some Lego sets, including the Hydra Stomper, a couple of other things. And they had. Tony Stark in Thor Ragnarok with a kind of mech armor Iron Man suit labelled What If and there was a Gamora figure in the What If minifigures in that kind of different armor she's got on with mm. basically a variation on Thanos' sword and I was starting to think where have both of them been? Because they wouldn't go to all the trouble of making Lego figures an entire set of them just on the off chance no. but they didn't reveal until the finale that they'd had to drop that episode so I think there was probably given it would have been you know, because it had the Grandmaster and Valkyrie and so on in it, and I assume Korg and Meek, that it would have been a comedy episode anyway. And it clearly yeah. was from that bit at the start of the finale. So there will probably have been a joke about that in there. Mentioning Disney Plus and the release of it, this is the first thing in Phase 4 that hasn't been moved around, hasn't been rearranged. It's where it was always intended to be, which is interesting because mm. all the other things have been... Sh- I mean, even some things that are still coming out after this have been shuffled around. Where was Eternals originally supposed to go? It was much much earlier in the running and there's a thing about I think one of the reasons people were a bit lukewarm to Black Widow was it was supposed to be the curtain raiser it was supposed to be leading you in before all the madness started but we got the madness first and then suddenly yeah. it's a bit... I mean, even the Falcon and the Winter Soldier wasn't quite a step back to the old style. And Black Widow was. And I think that's why. But this was always supposed to follow on from Loki and lead into the next couple of films. So it's interesting that of all of them, this was the immovable one. They seem to be able to control that a lot more. Whereas I've got no idea what order the Phase 4 films are coming out. I mean, it literally changes every time I blink or sneeze. It's probably changed four times whilst we've been having this conversation. <laughs> Well, one of the things that is coming out soon is Thor Love and Thunder, but the Thor episode in this, I have mixed feelings about because it's really funny and really good. There's some brilliant encounters with other characters at the party who didn't really show up in the rest of the series. And there's also Darcy hooking up with Howard the Duck, which is the most inevitable pairing in the whole MCU, really. But I kind of feel like the jokes, as good as they were, went on a bit too long. The scenes were too long. You know, there was too much before they moved on to another idea. You know, they have the party going on for ages and then Loki turns up and then that goes on for ages before Captain Marvel turns up and that battle that's quite a goes long on fight. Yeah. quite a length really. That's the one that felt like you think about it, it doesn't make a lot of sense does it because it's clearly enormously expensive to make. 
So if anything, they're wanting to be cutting scenes down. But it's like in this case, it's like a first draft and they've just filmed that. I mean, it's full animation with very, really elaborate backgrounds and effects and lighting and things like that. I mean, it's very, very elaborate. And you sort of think, surely if you're animating something, since the year dot, people have been looking for ways of animating a bit less, of repeating frames, of like cutting down scenes, because animation takes a while and it's expensive. And in this case it's the opposite way around it's like okay we've overwritten this a bit but we're just going to keep it this length just animate all of these really long scenes and put them in a row together it's good but it is an odd experience because it's like you're watching an um, action blockbuster that hasn't been edited at all. But that then is the polar opposite of where I really felt the series one was in the last two episodes, What If Ultron won and What If The Watcher Broke His Oath, which uh, as you've alluded to, Ultron gets hold of the Infinity Stones, threatens the whole multiverse, he just wants to destroy it all and be the only existing entity, really. It's like a pocket version of the Defenders or Infinity War and Endgame. The running time of it is less than an episode of the Defenders of the two episodes combined. As much as I love the defenders, that's fascinating that they could do that much in that shorter time. But it's the way the Watcher's involvement builds up slowly as well, because I got really atypically excited in the bit where the scene where Black Widow and Hawkeye are looking for something buried deep in S.H.I.E.L.D.'s files that can possibly defeat Ultron. Yeah. And they're coming closer and closer to Armin Zola's personnel file, and the Watcher's basically saying, go on, it's right in front of you. The Watcher's going, cold, cold, warm, yeah. warm. <laughs> You're so used to seeing the Watcher do the whole oath thing and not interfere, and you see he's really forced to get involved in that one. I mean, you'd had a little bit of a hint of it before when he interacts with Strange in that episode. It's great to have the AI version of Zola in it. It's got a really kind of like nail-biting scene of climbing up the silo with all the Ultron drones following them up and Hawkeye just firing endless arrows at them. I mean, it doesn't end well for him, obviously, but I think that one's maybe got the best set pieces in it. And I think also just having Hawkeye and the Widow as your leads... It's an underrated thing because they do actually work really well together. They don't necessarily need the major firepower of like the bigger names for that one. They carry it really well. And Lake Bell's, I think Lake Bell's brilliant as Black Widow. Obviously that leads into the final episode where the Watcher rounds up. Yeah, it's an update of the Magnificent Seven concept there. I mean, that's a fantastic finale. I mean, as I mentioned earlier, I think it does lose out on the fact that, I mean, you've got Killmonger in it and you actually do forget he's in it for length yes, of stretches because yeah. Killmonger does basically does fuck all for large parts of it <laughs> before then just revealing himself to be an arse again. But yeah, I really like the kind of BFF thing with Natasha and Peggy, which is very sweet. They work very well together. Party 4, you kind of think it could get a bit wearing, just seeing Thor be pissed all the time. But Chris Hemsworth's so good in it, lends such charm to the role, that you can, yeah, you can have Party 4 in it for that length of time and not want to destroy the world, to stop it from happening again. And the way it ends it, and the way it sort of sets it up, it'd be interesting to see if they pull on the same threads in this series. I mean, you've got that little end sequence of Peggy finding the Hydra Stomper, in storage somewhere. I don't know where they're really going you know, with the widow being dropped into another reality. I mean, that's clearly not our version of the MCU. That's clearly another version of it because of who's still around. That's just giving her her ending. But it'd be interesting to see kind of where they go with it if they pick up any more threads, if they just go further out there with like the second series. Well, that's one thing I really loved about the conclusion of this first series was the fact that, don't get me wrong, I think there were things they will pick up on from it. I think we are going to see Captain 
Captain Carter on the screen. I think there's a bit in the trailer for Spider-Man No Way Home where, let's just say, I get the impression Doctor Strange might be affected by events in this, although they won't have any direct bearing on it. But I like the fact it was just its own thing. It was not drawing from any of the other shows or films directly or anything that's coming up directly because they intentionally didn't have anyone new from Phase 4 in it. Again, to, you know, set it on its own. And whereas, you know, there are things like, I'm still lobbying for the Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. to come back. I kind of do wish, although I'm glad the Defenders sorted out the hand themselves, that it had some wider implication on the ongoing series. But I like that this is just something in complete isolation that it won't require anyone who wants to go see Doctor Strange the Multiverse of Madness to go and watch this first. Because it shouldn't do, because it is an animated side project. And I think they've really, really, they've kept that in mind the whole time. They've been aware of its position. They've been aware of how far up people's priorities it'll be. I think it works all the better for that. Yeah, and I mean, no matter how much I really love the whole cinematic saga, I do really like it when it's standalone as well. I mean, none of it is fully standalone, any of those films, really, if you think about it. Over years, they've built it up with a great deal of care, usually a great deal of care, sometimes a bit kind of like, what the fuck? are you doing every now and then <laughs> because there's things that they forget but they've made such an effort to bring in I mean, again look at the cast list of things go oh, claws in that or it's only a matter of time before you see a what if team up between I don't know the the Yancey Street kids and Mrs Arbogast or something <laughs> like that it's just you know you've had characters you wouldn't expect to have seen like Agatha Harkness show up in the yeah. whole wider universe it was a bit of a breath of fresh air it was a good palate cleanser wasn't it it was like okay this is an exciting thing which is on every week and it's half an hour long and it fits so much into it now I really like the fact that they're able to kind of do Marvel in miniature okay so there's only one thing left for me to ask now Martin if you had the ability to observe all multiverse and realities but were forbidden by the ancient laws of your people from interfering what would you use it for? I think at this time I'll try and find out the rationale behind that fourth Beatles museum and (laughs) (laughs) As long as they have a room recreating Carnival of Light I'll be happy The Carnival of Light closet (laughs) What if the Beatles have released Carnival of Light? (laughs) Martin, (laughs) thank you and Excelsior Thank you Tim If you've enjoyed this, don't forget you can buy more editions of It's Good Except It Sucks and plenty more besides, including details of my book Can't Help Thinking About Me at timworthington.org.